There was so much sound in our environment that we didn't really need the gongs to perk up our awareness. And I had originally planned for the gong meditation to be done outside in the garden where I thought we would all be sitting, but then just as I arrived, the sprinklers went on and the grass was a little bit soaked. So, so we moved the party inside, a place where we most often meet. But I still saw it as an opportunity to open our hearts. And in the teachings of the Buddha, heart, or the, in Sanskrit, heart, mind, are the same. Uh, so when we talk about opening the space of our mind, we're talking about the space of our heart. And we find in our own, everyone will find in your own practice that when, when your mind is very narrow and fixed, when you're lost in whatever uh, thinking may be occurring, uh, thinking about your life, about yesterday, about tomorrow, and perhaps lost in that, our, our body and mind in some way uh, become very small, enter a little, what I call a little vortex, call it the vortex of me, the vortex of mine, and everything is about me, my, and mine. So we, we call that preoccupation, we call it meing and myeing, or selfing. And that's a natural human tendency. You know, who else, if we don't think about ourselves, who will? We have to take care of ourselves. We have to give some attention uh, to, our, uh, and to ourselves. And it's a wonderful gift that we have to uh, reflect on our lives, reflect on our intentions, reflect on our goals and our life. But we have taken... Uh, reflecting uh, to a, a level of, of extreme, of excessiveness, where we've become so absorbed in our internal world or our inter- internal dialogue that we become somewhat oblivious uh, to what's both going on in the world around us, but also oblivious to what is happening, the effect of our life, the effect of, of everyone else's life, on this, what the Buddha called this fathom-long body. We become disembodied, disconnected, unable to, to feel a sense of connection, a sense of intimacy with, with ourselves, a sense of authenticity, a sense of congruence, a sense of peace, a sense of home. And when we don't feel at home with ourselves, we certainly don't feel too at home with, with others. So the whole of our practice is moving from the narrow gravitational field of I, me, and mine, of meing and mying, of selfing, which is a necessary part of our existence, but moving from that narrow gravitational field to a wider, more inclusive gravitational field that both includes our body and includes a deep sensitivity to the life, what seems to be the life outside of us, but, uh, but it reveals itself the longer we practice to be the life that is in the wider part of our mind. 
that the, none of us truly exist independently apart from each other. We really inter-are. We are we're quite, uh, quite connected. And we find this feeling of connection when our eyes are open, our minds are a little bit still for a moment, a little steady, we're just here. The sense of, of our separateness begins to melt away a little bit. And we don't feel quite as isolated as we do when we're when we're preoccupied. So this is the direction of practice. And it's not simply to widen our mind and to have a a direct knowledge that everything is in you. That's helpful. But it's not just to have a wide mind. And our mind clearly is not the sky. It's sky-like in that it has this vast panoramic openness. As well as, I hope you've got the sense that your mind also has this capacity for very, uh, very detailed, microscopic, very secluded attention on the details of, the, of sensation or whatever it is that you're paying attention to. So we move. There's a funny paradox in practice. The more you refine your attention in the single pointedness and the details of experience, quite naturally we begin to feel much more connected to everything around us. So when we connect with our breath and we bring our mind and body together, all of a sudden we feel more aware of the sounds, more aware of what's going on around it. So, and sometimes when we become very open and mindful of, in this wider sense, all of a sudden we start noticing the details of what's happening more clearly. So it, it works both ways. But our mind is not the sky. The sky is, a, is what we would call a... Some would say it was a blank nothing. In fact, some would say that there's no sky. That's a concept. There's just emptiness. There's vastness. So our mind has this quality of vastness and emptiness. But our mind also, what makes it different from the sky and what makes it different from just vast emptiness, that's one aspect of it, that may be its, uh, its essence in a way, but its nature, its nature is clarity, its nature is cognizance. It, it, when our mind is open, we see clearly. I can see clearly now, you know that song? The rain has passed. The sun of the light of awareness is shining and I see clearly. So awareness, our mind na- nature has awareness as its, um, as its nature, clarity. So everything, when we are open, everything is reflected. And it's interesting for those, of, how many of you here have sat retreats? Many people here. Okay, we've got a good crew of veterans. People who come on retreats notice that when as the dust settles and as our mind and body come together, as we dwell more, more continuously in the, in the immediate unfolding present, all of the senses, it's, it, those moments of attention, function like, uh, like a, a broom like, or like a, um, a dust mop. And what happens is, one teacher put it, Srinis Gadatta. We continue, each moment of attention is like brushing the dust of memory. 
And what reveals itself is the clear mirror of our mind. And so our senses become very open. Sights become clear. Sounds become more clear. Did you notice, even in the course of our 40-minute sitting, how everything started to seem more as though it was inside your mind? Everything seemed more vivid. Is that, is that just my experience? It was kind of wild, wasn't it? It was so crazy. Life is crazy. City life is crazy. Anyway, it's fu- so funny because I just did this same similar practice down in the uh, Southern California desert near Joshua Tree. I was leading a retreat. Many people here tonight were on that retreat. And it was in a, well, you could hear highway noise in the distance, but it was in a room that was fairly quiet. And so the the only show in town was the gongs, but the gongs were almost drowned out tonight by the, by the sound. It was so different. But nevertheless, as, we, as our mind opens, its nature is clarity. And our senses open. And what we realize is that when, our, when we've moved into that gravitational field of awareness, of openness, of wakefulness, the world is so rich with experience. It's so alive. It's so. Um, it's also so painful. It's open. It's painful, because not only is the nature of our mind clarity, but the expression of that is this deep caring that flows from a mind or a heart that's open. And so we, we feel, I felt the pain of this neighborhood tonight. Why do you laugh? I'm glad you laughed, though. You feel it every day. That's, that's a good sign. But we feel it, but we try not to get identified with it. We try not to... We try not to get lost in the pain. And by staying open, see, if we get lost in the pain of the neighborhood, we become preoccupied, we become narrow, and our whole world becomes the pain of the neighborhood in our mind. But when we, but when we are open and we feel the pain in the neighborhood, that we, it's no less real, no less true, but we, we're free then to respond. We can, we have... We're not just buried in, our, um, in the pain of, of what we notice every day. So it's essential in our practice that we move from the narrow vortex of our, our whatever it is that we become fixated on and lost in and absorbed in to this, this wider sense of openness and caring. The way we framed the retreat that we were just on was that we... We divided the evening discourses into uh, into one of the lists that the Buddha offered. The lists of, you know, the Buddha's teachings are full of, because it was an oral tradition that was never even written down for the first 500 years. And so it was very easy to have things delineated by, by lists, by numbers. And so there was the Four Noble Truths, the Noble Eightfold Path, 
the five hindrances, the five spiritual faculties, the five spiritual powers, the seven factors of enlightenment, and a very central list that, to me, simply expresses the effect of a mind that is developed, open, radiant, caring. And that's the list of what are called the uh, ten uh, paramis. In the Sanskrit, they're called paramitas. They're the perfections of, they're called the perfections of a Buddha. They're the, they are the qualities uh, that a Buddha embodies uh, to perfection, but that each of us has those juicy qualities that we all have within ourselves that become occluded, become blocked, become frustrated in our lives of, of preoccupation. And those paramitas are um, beautiful qualities that we can reawaken in ourselves. They will naturally reawaken if we practice moment-to-moment mindfulness, moment-to-moment attention uh, and caring of the details of our life. Because you can't, you cannot, if you're, if you're being mindful and present, if you're being lucidly aware, you inevitably will be able to, and will, you won't be able to do anything but respond uh, more wisely to your situation, to your, to whatever your predicament is, either your inner situation or the outer situation. So that's the function of mindfulness, is to open this uh, and make our mind, our heart more welcoming and then ultimately more responsive. So the first of these qualities that the Buddha developed, uh, one of the expressions of Buddha nature, of our, of our deeper nature, one of those expressions and the first quality that the Buddha ever talked about to lay people is the quality that... Uh, Linda spoke about during our transition is the quality of generosity. Generosity is the first of the ten paramis. A quality that when we are open, it's, it naturally flows. That's what happens when we have an open heart. We want to give ourselves, we want to offer, we want to give that which we value the most. We want to be present even with, with other people just as an act of generosity. So we often think on Tuesday night, oh, I'm coming to, coming to Mission Dharma to, to have a little peace and quiet. But as our practice deepens, and it's expressed by so many people who have given a lot of their time and their energy to this group, that after a while, you don't come to Mission Dharma to get something, you come here to offer something, to offer your presence at first, and then maybe... Uh, some kind of volunteering or setup, or uh, we actually need a volunteer coordinator, anybody to, to help uh, organize the people who, who feel that sense of generosity and then offer, offer their services. Tonight we have in our room, in this room, two of our Sangha members who have been, in my heart and mind, uh, a un, what has felt to me like an unbroken flow of generosity for years now. Uh, Linda and Marilyn, they're sitting in the back of the room. I don't want to out them too much. But they are, this is their last night here, actually. I think 
or maybe not, I don't know. Maybe it is. It's their last night here. They're moving to Portland. And they even, and it's Marilyn's birthday too, so happy birthday, Marilyn. We love you. We love you both. And I, when I think of you, I just think of, of just amazing generosity. They've both offered, they've both supported the Sangha, been part of the organizing committee, and they also are, have been amazingly generous in the Donna Basket week after week, and, and it is Marilyn's brainchild, the Sangha Services Directory, which allowed people both to offer their services and then maybe a portion of whatever their services were. And this, so it's just been a, it's been a, a feast of generosity, being, having them in our sangha, uh, being, meet, greeting them, teasing them, just a beautiful connection, and I hope it lasts forever. And so thank you for your generosity. So this is a quality that comes that everyone has within them, and it's something that we can develop. We can develop by when we feel the impulse to give, to offer. And of course, that's in every possible way in our lives, to offer a smile, to offer a word, to, um, you know, to offer your stuff, whatever, whatever it is. To think every day about the, the possibility that we can train our hearts to be like a Buddha, and, the, you know, the Buddha, for those who haven't heard much teaching on generosity before, the Buddha said that if we knew how, if we knew the, the liberating, expanding power of generosity, the heart-opening power of generosity, the joy-inducing power of generosity, we would not let a single meal pass without sharing it. And that it's one of those qualities, and this is a quote from the Buddha, giving brings happiness at every stage of expression. So it's a cause of happiness. We experience joy in forming the intention to be generous. We experience the joy in the actual giving of something. And we experience joy in remembering that we have given. So we may not think of this as a means, ordinarily, of coming out of the narrow vortex of our own self-preoccupation, but it, it is tried and true. People who practice generosity start to feel a deeper and wider connection to the world around them. The second of the qualities that the, the, a Buddha, a Buddha just means one who is fully awake. Not just that historical Buddha, but a Buddha. Buddha means awake. And all of us are Buddhas, although as Sometimes, as one of my friends, Surya, says, we're like Buddhas in drag. We're, we're sleeping Buddhas. But Buddhas we all are, and we all have a capacity to expand our hearts uh, by, uh, by living a life that is entirely, 100% committed to harmlessness, committed to not causing harm with our, our um, physical actions, not causing harm with our speech, and not causing harm with our thoughts. And making that a very central day-to-day practice, one of those practices that is tried and true. 
where you where you make the commitment not to cause harm with speech, not to cause harm with sexuality, not to cause harm with intoxicants. So much harm caused by by lying, so much caused by by deception, so much caused by by insensitivity to the fact that all of our actions, good and bad, impact not just ourselves but impact everywhere, everyone. But as we as we deepen our sensitivity to non-harming, we see that uh, that there's a great happiness that comes through not. Uh, somebody, I just want to back up. Someone said to me today in a in a meeting that they have they have nothing to hide anymore that they have absolutely nothing in their life to hide. Which, which told me they had nothing presently that they are ashamed of, that they are... Um, their, their karma is clean when it comes to their, their actions with themselves and with other beings. I thought it was the... It, to me, I, I, I took it to be a lion's roar, and it felt so utterly authentic... And it, this is just one element of the joy that comes from acting in a way that is non-harming and not having to just constantly experience the reverberations of something that you are sorry that you did, said. But even if you have caused harm, everyone has. Part of the way that we, we inspire ourselves to then move toward harmlessness is we... we uh, regard ourselves with a deep sense of mercy and forgiveness, over and over forgiving ourselves, realizing and repeating in our minds, it's okay that I am imperfect, it's okay that I make mistakes, it's okay that I'm a learner, it's okay that I have in the past caused harm to myself or others. I forgive myself. But then we don't stop there. We we decide, okay, I'm going to plant the seeds of non-harming, of harmlessness. So I can actually be able to be one of those people. And you can be one of those people. I can be one of those people that knows what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness. And offer to everyone I meet the gift of fearlessness. The gift of fearlessness, in this case, meaning that nobody has to be afraid of you. That what you see is what you get. You have nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing, no hiding, no, no, no little dance. Just think about it. Such a treat not to have to move one way or the other to be with another person or to... Just what you see, here I am. And it's blissful not to be living in a sense of internal or external blame. And that's, it's all within our power. This is just another one of the qualities. Another quality that flows, and I'll never get through all of them, just a, just a little brief survey. Another quality that flows, because what also awakens when our mind awakens and our heart opens is the is the intelligence that lives in us the wisdom that lives in us that all of us are 
when we can see clearly, when our perception is not distorted by, by seeing through the lens of memory all the time or the lens of worry, the lens of regret, the lens of, of wanting to really see clearly, we see as the Buddha did. That, yeah, life's hard. And what makes it really hard is this chronic tendency to want it to be other than the way it is. This chronic tendency to, to become desperately dependent on getting somewhere else, having something else, getting the newest technology, the newest something. desperately clinging to um, distraction. So the, the wisdom that flows, what, with wisdom, what flows naturally, if you can see clearly, is this a quality of renunciation. Mostly renouncing the things that you know cause you suffering and cause other suffering. So it feeds right into virtue on one hand, but also feeds into maybe taking a, taking a little technology break every day. Wouldn't that be a novel idea? When you're having a conversation with someone, not picking up your iPhone. Anytime you're in, in conversation, somebody on the retreat raised their hand and said, that's what, that's what I do when... As I, or I forgot who said it. Maybe it was one of the teachers. That's one of the practices that you can do. When you're with another person, put away your phone. You know, I notice if I put it on the, t- the counter, because you know, I've broken the screen on my phone how many times? This one's broken now, too. But I've, so I put it on the counter, but then I'm, my mind is... <laughs> I've got a... People are going to think I have a twitch, and maybe I even do. (laughs) So renouncing uh, the causes of our suffering, which means practicing simplicity, practicing um, taking care with with, with resources, food, And not, not buying everything that comes into my mind that I want. And not screaming every time I get a little angry. Renouncing actions of body, speech, and mind that I know will, will come back at me. It's just for this quality... Especially the giving up to, you know, all these, the things that we've become so obsessed with. It's, it's not giving them up, like don't, do, not, don't buy an iPhone or don't buy this or don't buy that. It's, it's having a, the renunciation is, is having that realization that things do not give lasting satisfaction. It comes out of wisdom. As Suzuki Roshi said, Renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but in understanding that they go away, and then acting accordingly. So then, renunciation feeds into the next 
the next paramita, the next uh, quality of, of heart and mind that flows from, from openness, and that's wisdom, and that's understanding the four, the truths that, uh, that, that part of being alive is that you have things that are hard to bear, what turns that, the difficulties into, into a lot of mental suffering is, is, um, is our reaction. Not so much what's happening in our lives, but it's how that we relate to it. How do we relate to the difficulties that present themselves? Do we compound them with, with worry, with, um, with the desire to distract ourselves? Do we... Do we make things worse? Do, our, do we tighten up in fear and then live in, uh, live in a lot of anxiety? Or do we, as it's possible, do we let go? Do we find our composure with change, with things that are hard to bear? Do we just sit in the middle of it all and find a sense of freedom and not wait till things work out perfectly? Because they don't. Perfectly imperfect. So that's the kind of wisdom that grows. And the deeper our practice goes in opening, we see, oh, many joys. Ten, as the Zen tradition, the 10,000 joys emerge in our lives and the 10,000 sorrows. And so we see my, my happiness cannot be dependent on joys, nor can it be dependent on the avoidance of sorrows. But my happiness, to have it be true happiness, has to be a happiness that's unconditioned, not dependent on joys and sorrows. And that's what's possible as we awaken, a well-being that is unconditioned, where, we, where our reactions to difficulties l- loosen to the point where we, when things are painful, they're painful, but they're not the end of the world. And when things are pleasurable, we enjoy it immensely, but we kiss the joy as it flies, like the William Blake poem. This is a wisdom that grows, that, uh, that conditioned happiness keeps us in a state of endless searching. Unconditional happiness, happiness of being awake, that's, that's, worth, that's worth aiming for. And so to develop that strength of heart and mind and openness to be able to find that, that wisdom, find that, um, that quality of renunciation, find that, that commitment to practice generosity and virtue, we need energy. And that's the next quality of the ten paramitas is energy. And we do everything in our power. You know, we all have different, we have variations in our energy, but we do everything in our power to make our lives as vital as, as we can. We don't do anything to, to, sh- to shut our energy system down. We don't dull ourselves with, with intoxicants. We don't dull ourselves with excessive food. We don't dull ourselves with excessive sleep or not enough sleep. We do everything we can. With, we, we don't dull ourselves through being sedentary to the extent that we can keep from doing that. We do whatever it is 
we create in our own life, given our own temperament and our own circumstances, whatever it is that maximizes your energy. Because if you don't have good physical energy, it's really hard to have mental strength. All of this, any one of us can refine these qualities in our lives. It's not just for the yogis that go sit in the caves. It's right in the, in the marketplace. So energy and the last four that I won't um, go into are patience. We've got to have a lot of patience, especially if you're a driver. <laughs> now, especially because people, there is no end to incompetence. <laughs> it is shocking how unconscious, how unconscious so many of us are. All of us are from time to time, but it is pervasive. So if you don't have patience, you're in trouble. And we can't blame anyone else for our, for our unhappiness or our impatience. Because the world is not made in our image. It is the way it is. And, it, and the world is the way it is because people are the way they are. And it, that's just how it is. But we can... We can, each individual can make a better world by, um, by understanding how it is and finding our composure in it, finding our patience with it. Well, learning how to deal with incompetence and all the things that should be other, the way, different than the way they are, to deal with that with, with a sense of humor, first of all, I'm glad everybody chuckled a little bit, and to deal with, with it... Uh, with patience. Now, patience also flows from wisdom, but, but I can't say any more about that right now. Last four qualities, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and finally, which I've been alluding to the whole time, is the quality of equanimity. That's the culmination of the paramitas, the, the sky-like impartiality that can meet the joys and the sorrows, let them come and go with a full understanding that whether I like it or not, things are the way they are, that understanding that I care about the world and I care about everyone, but I may not be able to keep people from suffering. I will do everything I can because I care, but whether or not people become happy that I become happy, it's beyond, to a certain degree, it's beyond my will. And so it's to be philosophical, it's to, to, find, to find a balance in our heart to be able to cope with how difficult it is to be a human. And then, but as well, find the great joy in a heart that isn't so reactive, the great joy of equanimity, the joy of seeing the arising and passing of things. There's a, a great delight that can come. And of course, all of this culminates in, in an in a awakening to what we pointed to in the meditation tonight, awakening to the, that in us which is deathless, which is unconditioned, that is immovable, that, that, that is unaltered regardless of the joys and sorrows of our life, the very nature of our hearts. The Buddha that you are. You are the Buddha. 
as Kala Rinpoche says, why don't you know this? Because you don't think you are. But if you can, if you can taste this sense of awareness, the sense of vastness, one time you can refer to it all the time, to this ever-present wakefulness and clarity, uncreated. Try to stop being wakeful right now. Try to stop being clear right now. And you'll see that it's your, it's your, it's your home. It's nearer than your breath. Nearer than there. It's, it's, it's deeper than your name. So thanks for listening. Let's just sit quietly for 30 seconds. And just to remind us that there are other metaphors used other than the sky for the nature of our hearts and minds. I'll read a passage from a a sutra called the Ashtavakra Sutra called The Heart of Awareness. It's a poem. It's called The Boundless Ocean. I am the boundless ocean. This way and that, the wind blowing where it will drives the ship of the world. But I am not shaken. I am the unbounded deep in whom the waves of all the worlds naturally rise and fall. But I do not rise and fall. I am the infinite deep in whom all the worlds appear to rise beyond all form forever still. Even so am I. I am not in the world. The world is not in me. I am pure. I am unbounded. Free from attachment, free from desire, still. Even so am I. Oh, how wonderful. I am awareness itself. No less. The world is a magic show. But in me there is nothing to embrace, nothing to turn away. I am the boundless ocean. May all beings awaken to their ocean-like nature. May all beings awaken all the qualities, all the intelligence, all the love that flows from wakefulness. May all beings realize freedom. And may our practice tonight and every night and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings. Thank you. So this week, uh, remember the half-day retreat this Saturday. I'll look forward to seeing as many of you as feel like coming. It's a great thing to do right in the middle of the city. Have four hours of sitting and walking and a little little dharma. And then uh, also any of you who are interested if you to come to the retreat, contact Spirit Rock soon. And uh, it's a beautiful place to practice. 
and having being able to sustain practice over seven days if your if your situation is such that can allow it is a it's a it will be a tremendous blessing in your life and if you happen to speak to anybody here who just came off of the nine day retreat they'll they'll um, you look into their eyes you'll see what happens it's beautiful anyway thank you all so much and thanks for your generosity oh yes. And we also need some volunteers to help put the chairs back to the way that they normally are and to help bring the tables inside from out on the patio. Anybody willing to help? Please. It's you. Chairs, the chairs actually are. Here, let's one second. Is there anyone to guide the chair people? Hey, Linda, could you help guide the people to put the chairs? There's some people who want, are volunteering, and I, they have to be at an angle, kind of facing the center. Not to worry too much about it. I I did have so good to see you. I saw you the other day a couple weeks ago. Yeah. So delighted to see you. Yeah. I'm settling back in. So glad you are here. I like you. Mississippi. Mississippi. Going to teach in Mississippi. So Monday. Seventy miles north of.